Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, February 29th, 2024, the 1135th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So I want to get into all of the various events of the last couple of days. Uh, Trump winning Michigan, Mitch McConnell announcing that he would step down as Senate leader for the Republican Party movement on the spending deadline and the liberal meltdown over the Supreme Court's choice to hear arguments on Donald Trump's claims for presidential immunity. But let's get a little update on Russia because the saber rattling has been intensifying. We've had so many narrative elements on the Russia-Ukraine issue come up over the past few weeks. 
You think back from Zelensky considering firing the commander in chief Zeluzny of his military, Victoria Newland's visit, Zeluzny threatening not to step down. Finally, that happening, him being replaced immediately. They give up on the battle of Avdievka and retreat from there. At the same time, Vladimir Putin is making his case on a world stage with Tucker Carlson. And of course, we spent a lot of last week on the Alexei Navalny situation. So Putin has an election coming up in March. And this week he gave essentially the equivalent of a State of the Union speech that would be delivered here. Now, Joe Biden, the fake president, intends to actually deliver one of those a week from tonight, which is kind of pointless because Donald Trump essentially just addressed the nation from CPAC on Saturday, as he has done now for four years in a row. And being that he is the duly elected president and there are probably more legitimately seated congressmen in that room at CPAC than there are in the entire Congress without them. He probably even chose the proper venue. But Putin's State of the Nation speech was even a bit more hardcore than Donald Trump's are. Here is some of the coverage from today in The Guardian. Sending troops to Ukraine would risk provoking nuclear war. Putin tells NATO. Vladimir Putin has told NATO countries that they risk provoking a nuclear war if they send troops to fight in Ukraine. In an annual State of the Nation speech, ramping up his threats against Europe and the U.S. In a reference to Emmanuel Macron's comments earlier this week in which he opened the door to sending European ground troops to Ukraine, the Russian president said it would lead to tragic consequences for the nations who decided to do that. There has been talk about the possibility of sending NATO military contingents to Ukraine, Putin said in his combative two-hour address on Thursday. Western nations must understand that we also have weapons that can hit targets on their territory. All this really threatens a conflict with the use of nuclear weapons and the destruction of civilization. Don't they get that? We remember the fate of those who once sent their contingents to the territory of our country. Now the consequences for possible interventionists will be much more tragic. Putin described Western warnings that Russia might attack Europe as nonsense, but spoke of a potential nuclear conflict if the West tried an intervention in Russia. They think this is some kind of game. They are blinded by their own superiority complex, he said. The Guardian article also notes that he called for the denazification of Ukraine, and Russia said it would do, quote, everything to achieve all our aims. Now, a lot of people have been talking about Tucker Carlson's interview with Lex Friedman, and I spent a few minutes the other day talking about his remarks about our stolen elections. He also had plenty to say about Ukraine and Russia and Vladimir Putin. He did a lot of tough talking about Vladimir Putin. That was very strange. And then he and Lex Friedman spent about 10 minutes agreeing that Nazis in Ukraine are not real and are not a problem. Tucker said that that's the case because Nazis were a very specific thing in Germany in World War II. So therefore, these couldn't be Nazis. He said he didn't even know what Vladimir Putin was talking about in the interview they had. He's 
convinced, however, that Putin really believes there's a Nazi problem, despite, of course, there not being one, because that's not possible. Now, Putin also mentioned the Nazi who was in the Canadian parliament in that interview to Tucker Carlson. But Tucker Carlson still claims not to have any idea what Vladimir Putin could possibly be talking about. And it is moments like that that should indeed make you doubt the man on TV. There is a long history of that ideology in exactly that part of the world. It never left Ukraine. They can call it nationalism or whatever else, but it is the exact same ideology it has never left. As for the rest of the Nazi movement, they were flown all around the world where they infiltrated various governments, including our own. The Nazis weren't even isolated in Germany in World War II. We can pretend the U.S. was not involved on their side, despite the fact that major industrialists were actually working on their side. But you could even skip that and talk solely about how many entered our government. Or you could talk about the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and George Soros and all of their historical roles and the causes they support still to this day. All of that is still in coordination with the same global regime agenda, the same Prussian system of subversion and infiltration. So to claim that Vladimir Putin is somehow off his rocker for talking about denazifying Ukraine while pretending that the problem doesn't exist is a little ridiculous. Tucker says he doesn't watch TV and he doesn't go on the Internet. So one has to wonder where he gets his information because he also seems to know about Gonzalo Lira. Did the New York Times tell him that? What is he reading for his information to know very specific things from one viewpoint and not anything at all from any other viewpoint? Does he just get all his information from intelligence agents? You have to eventually wonder what the input here is. There is one more amazing thing from this Guardian article that I have to relay. Allies of the late opposition leader Alexei Navalny said Russian authorities had intervened to stop them from holding his funeral on Thursday as they worried it would overshadow Putin's speech. Putin is yet to comment on the death of his most formidable opponent. Navalny's supporters are expected to gather on Friday in Moscow for his funeral amid uncertainty whether police will arrest those who have come to say goodbye. And of course, there is nothing more they would love than to somehow be able to initiate a false flag event over there and turn Alexei Navalny into George Floyd. Defund Putin's police. Now, they've been trying to ratchet up tension around this Russian situation, obviously, for well over two years at this point. And there have been plenty of periods where we hear about nuclear threats from one side or the other. We hear about attacks on power plants in Chernobyl or Zaporozhia. We hear about weapons being moved to Belarus. And we hear globalists telling us all about how Vladimir Putin is going to have a, a preemptive nuclear strike and that he wants to take over all of Europe, no matter how many times he says he does not want it. And it seems we have maybe some narrative movement here because finally the leaders in Europe are standing up and declaring that they actually don't want 
anything to do with this Ukraine situation. This is from the Associated Press on Tuesday. Germany and Poland say they're not sending troops to Ukraine as the Kremlin warns of a wider war. The head of NATO said the U.S.-led military alliance has no plans to send troops to Ukraine after other Central European leaders confirmed that they too would not be providing soldiers. The Kremlin, meanwhile, warned that a direct conflict between NATO and Russia would be inevitable if the alliance sends combat troops. In this case, we need to talk not about probability, but about the inevitability of conflict, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov told reporters. Moscow's warning came a day after French President Emmanuel Macron said that sending in Western ground troops should not be ruled out in the future after hosting a conference of top officials from more than 20 of Ukraine's Western backers. The comedic actor, by the way, Volodymyr Zelensky, is currently meeting in Saudi Arabia with Mohammed bin Salman, and there is some speculation online that this may have something to do with BRICS. If the comedic actor in Ukraine announced that Ukraine was joining BRICS, that would be absolutely hysterical. But back to the AP. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz appeared to have a different view of what happened in Paris. He said the participants had agreed, quote, that there will be no ground troops, no soldiers on Ukrainian soil who are sent there by European states or NATO states, end quote. Schultz also said there was consensus, quote, that soldiers operating in our countries also are not participating actively in the war themselves, end quote. With Macron increasingly looking isolated and opposition politicians in France furiously critical of his suggestion that ground troops might be considered, the French president's government subsequently sought Tuesday to clarify his comments. Their minister said, referring to France, it's not sending troops to wage war against Russia. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said NATO allies are providing unprecedented support to Ukraine. We've done that since 2014 and stepped up after the full-scale invasion. But there are no plans for NATO combat troops on the ground in Ukraine. At a meeting in Prague on Tuesday, Polish Prime Minister Donald Tusk said, Poland does not plan to send its troops to Ukraine. Prime Minister Peter Fiala of the Czech Republic insisted that his country, quote, certainly doesn't want to send its soldiers. Slovakian Prime Minister Robert Fico has said his government is not planning to propose a deployment, but that some countries were weighing whether to strike bilateral deals to provide troops to help Ukraine fend off the Russian invasion. The AP also notes European nations are worried the U.S. will reduce its support as aid for Ukraine is held up in Congress. They also have concerns that former President Donald Trump might return to the White House and change the course of U.S. policy on the continent. Yeah, that's going to happen. Sky News had some other comments from Putin. He said the Western nations must realize that we also have weapons that can hit targets on their territory. All this really threatens a conflict with the use of nuclear weapons and the destruction of civilization. Don't they get that? Sky News says that visibly angry Mr. Putin suggested Western politicians recall the fate of those who unsuccessfully invaded his country in the past, like Adolf Hitler and Napoleon Bonaparte, saying, but now the consequences will be far more tragic 
They think it is a cartoon. And to the extent that anything we are seeing in this entire situation is to be believed, Putin has a point. The Western leaders simply do not seem serious about any of this, and they haven't seemed serious at any point in the process. In fact, most of what they have done is pitched a series of false flag events that turn out not to be true. They've made a bunch of threats of escalation and haven't followed through. They've certainly promoted the cause. They have certainly committed plenty of resources, money, weapons to the cause. And who knows where any of that ended up. And it seems to be the case that they have certainly coordinated with whatever it is we call the Ukrainian military to provide personnel in the form of mercenaries, intelligence, targeting, logistics, and ample cover in the media and with these global governing bodies. But virtually all of that has been exposed as a front. There's just nothing there behind it. There's no reason to take these people seriously. They have been trying to apply pressure. I forgot to mention sanctions, of course, but none of it has worked. They thought they were going to be able to threaten Vladimir Putin and Russia into compliance. It hasn't worked at all. And you have to think about what this means for these people, for the higher ups in the regime's command and control structure. Not only are they losing their grip on control, their system for control is no longer working. It's breaking down. Their compromise isn't doing it. The threats aren't doing it. The financial manipulation isn't doing it. And all the while, people across the world are waking up to what has been done to them and what has been done in their name. All right, so let's get to the primary Tuesday evening in Michigan. That was only one of the two nominating contests in Michigan. Much like in Nevada, the Democrat Party within the state changed the date of their primary. They pushed the date up into February, so it would be before Super Tuesday. The USA Today described the situation this way. On February 27th, the Michigan primary is happening earlier than usual to meet President Joe Biden's request to diversify the early primary states. See that? It's all about diversity. I mean, you know how black Detroit is. And you might think, wait, is that racist? And yeah, maybe it is. But it's also legitimately the Democrat Party's thinking about all this. I'm not making that up. They will tell you on TV. USA Today says, but the Republican primary couldn't be moved as quickly as the Democratic one, as the Republican National Convention rules say that only Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada and South Carolina can hold primaries before March 1st. So the state works with the national party to create a hybrid plan where voters will cast their ballots in the GOP primary on February 27th and the state party will hold a caucus and convention on March 2nd. So on Saturday, in each of the 13 congressional districts, there will be caucus meetings and each district will award three delegates. And you would have to imagine that all of those would go to Donald Trump. Trump was declared the winner in Michigan. And now, by the way, two days later, there's still only 96% of the estimated vote in. Donald Trump is up 68.1% to 26.6%. So another 40 plus point win. The Republicans actually ended up 
With about 300,000 more total votes than the Democrats, Michigan, of course, is a state that we have to pretend the Democrats actually won back in 2020. But of course, you also have to keep in mind that there really isn't a Democratic primary happening right now. So it's not all that big a deal that so many fewer Democrat votes were counted than Republican votes. We don't even know that any votes were counted. Michigan is as corrupt as it gets. The Democrat Party there is insane. And the Republican Party there is a corrupt, controlled opposition to the Democrat Party, just like in every blue state. And of course, the same thing happens the other direction in red states sometimes as well. It is a uniparty. We do not need to pretend otherwise. CNN in their piece about takeaways from Tuesday night said that for Donald Trump, the roughly 30% of Republicans who voted either for former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley or on the GOP's uncommitted line constituted a warning sign for Donald Trump. They wrote, though his third presidential nomination in three tries could be clinched in a few weeks, the fact remains that a sizable group of Republicans are either firmly opposed to him or still to be won over including in a state that he won by a sliver in 2016 and then lost to Biden by roughly 150,000 votes four years later. Now, Trump didn't lose Michigan to Joe Biden. He certainly didn't lose by 150,000 votes. All of that analysis is nonsense. And honestly, who cares? And I know when I talk this way, sometimes people get upset. They're like, well, okay, well, we, we know that didn't really happen, but they haven't acknowledged that. And right now, technically on the record, it says that did happen. Okay. I agree with you that it says that, except it didn't happen. So any analysis based on the fact that it actually did happen makes no sense. You are going to fail on that analysis. You cannot plan for fake numbers. You cannot build your strategy around the presence of fraud in a way that allows you to trick yourself into believing that you are going to conquer the fraud system while it is being run by the people who put the fraud in place. It's good to build a strategy, but the strategy should be reality-based while you simultaneously work to make sure that the issue is dealt with on a reality basis. The idea that Joe Biden won Michigan by 150,000 votes and therefore we need to do X, Y, Z to make up that difference, that doesn't make any sense. Let's say you made up that 150,000 votes. What do you do if they figured out a way to get 20,000 more votes somewhere? And this isn't even about solving the problem. This is just about what sort of analysis you are going to try to incorporate in your belief formation. What is going to help you make sense of a difficult situation? Is it to pretend that Joe Biden really won Michigan by 150,000 votes? And so therefore we have to pretend that the rest of this paragraph is true. The rest of the paragraph isn't true. Look what they're saying. They are making the claim that 30% of the Republicans who voted in the primary in Michigan on Tuesday night, the primary that wasn't supposed to be moved up, but was 30% of those quote unquote Republicans voted either for Nikki Haley or for the uncommitted line. 
And then they analyze from there applying the false numbers from the 2020 election. So it's falsehood combined with falsehood. But that 30% wasn't Republicans who voted. That 30% contained crossover Democrats and fake votes. Nikki Haley is legitimately running as a centrist alternative to Joe Biden. She is intentionally courting Democrat voters by going after Donald Trump. Understand that you are being told a story here. Dean Phillips, one of the alternative Democrat candidates in the fake Democrat primary, said he expected Joe Biden to win upwards of 90 percent of the vote in that primary on Tuesday. And Biden was not credited with upwards of 90 percent of that vote. A hundred thousand people were recorded to have voted as Democrats for the uncommitted line. And so they had to build a big narrative around that to let everybody know to expect a big uncommitted vote, because that would be Democrat voters expressing themselves about a very particular issue. CNN describes it this way. Supporters of the movement urging Michigan Democrat voters to check uncommitted said their campaign had been a success because it had attracted enough votes to get Biden's attention. You see that now the fake president is listening to us. We know Joe Biden is going to be our nominee, so it's a very, very significant outcome. Former Michigan Representative Andy Levin, a supporter of the uncommitted effort, told CNN on Tuesday night. My worry was that this primary would happen and the president wouldn't get the message about how mad people are. Well, if it's after 7.30 p.m., he's not getting the message from anyone about anything. Levin said that he thought the message that Biden can't win Michigan in November unless he changes course had been effectively communicated through Tuesday's result. The uncommitted campaign kept its focus narrow, aiming to convince Biden's White House to seek a permanent ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas conflict. So we are being told that 100,000 Democrats came out and voted for no one as a way to show Joe Biden and, of course, the rest of the country that the nation that allowed paragliding go-karts to penetrate the most secure border on earth and stage their 9-11 needs to stop turning Palestine into glass, essentially. Man, it would be a lot nicer to know how many people were actually coming out to vote. But that's not something the results are capable of telling you. CNN made a point to let their audience know that Dean Phillips was fading. Oh, he's just disappearing. He seems to do worse against Joe Biden every time, even though more people figure out who he is every week. And I'm not a Dean Phillips fan. I don't care about Dean Phillips at all. But Dean Phillips is disappearing for getting about 20,000 votes. And at the same time, Marianne Williamson, that crazy new age lady, she's deciding to unsuspend her campaign for getting also 20,000 votes. So for 20,000 votes in Michigan, one person is disappearing. Another person is actually surging. And of course, the fake president is totally holding strong. But we are really in the heart of fake primary season. Tuesday is Super Tuesday, March 5th. Alabama, Arkansas, Alaska, California, 
Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, Virginia, and Utah will all be going out to vote in their respective fake primaries. And then the media will tell us stories about momentum and inevitability. And maybe the Uniparty will figure out a way to steal one of those states for Nikki Haley somehow. They'll claim she's proving her viability with some certain type of voter and she's going to live to fight another day. Then she will go into March 12th where they have Georgia, Mississippi, Washington and Hawaii. And the following Tuesday, we get Arizona, Florida, Illinois, Kansas and Ohio. And a couple weeks after that, you've got Connecticut, Delaware, New York, Rhode Island and Wisconsin on April 2nd. Now, Donald Trump is being called the presumptive nominee already. That's certainly going to intensify after Tuesday and then again after the 12th. And at that point, we'll see whether Nikki Haley decides to keep on going in her lost cause to win the Republican primary. Maybe she just wants to make sure that she will definitely have the second most Republican delegates going into the nominating convention in the summer just in case something happens to Donald Trump. Maybe she wants more exposure as a national figure. Make those stupid centrists think about maybe she's someone who they can empower to go forward. She'll keep everything on track for the Uniparty without making us feel irresponsible the way we did when we voted for that demented old pervert. And maybe she'll become attractive as a third party candidate. I have found it rather odd, and maybe you have too, that we haven't heard much talk about any primaries beyond the presidential primary. There's a little talk about the Senate primary in California, the seat that Dianne Feinstein held. They're having a series of debates between former Major League Baseball player Steve Garvey and watermelon head himself, Adam Schiff, then that nutty lady, Katie Porter, and former potential black woman vice president for Joe Biden candidate, Barbara Lee. But beyond that, you hardly hear anything about any other primary in the country. California has one of those jungle primaries where everyone just competes in the same primary and the top two vote getters in the primary face off in the general. In that way, they're able to protect all the incumbent Democrats. They just bring in another Democrat give that Democrat the second most votes and their incumbent Democrat gets to run in the fall against a Democrat no one knows and the party doesn't support. It's an amazing system if you want to make sure to have a one-party state while claiming it is just respecting democracy and respecting the voters the entire time. It's like an extra layer of protection to make sure that politicians like Nancy Pelosi will never have to be accountable to their own constituents. Exactly how the founders drew it up. And speaking of people who embody the spirit of exactly what the founders intended, here's Mitch McConnell. I think back to my first days in the Senate with deep appreciation for the time that helped shape my view of the world. I'm unconflicted about the good within our country and the irreplaceable role we play as the leader of the free world. 
It's why I worked so hard to get the national security package passed earlier this month. Believe me, I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. That said, I believe more strongly than ever that America's global leadership is essential to preserving the shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan discussed. As long as I'm drawing breath on this earth, I will defend American exceptionalism. So as I've been thinking about when I would deliver some news to the Senate, I always imagined a moment when I had total clarity and peace about the sunset of my work. A moment when I'm certain I have helped preserve the ideals I so strongly believe. That day arrived today. My goals when I was narrowly elected to the Senate back in 1984 were fairly modest. Do a good job for the people of Kentucky and convince them that by doing so they might rehire me for a second term. That was it. That was the plan. If you would have told me 40 years later that I would stand before you as the longest serving Senate leader in American history, frankly, I would have thought you'd lost your mind. I have the honor of representing Kentucky in the Senate longer than anyone else in our state's history. I just never could have imagined, never could have imagined that happening when I arrived here in 1984 at 42. So that's Mitch McConnell addressing the Senate yesterday, talking about his 40-year Senate career and announcing that he is going to step down as the leader of the Republicans in the Senate so that a new leader can be chosen in November and becoming leader, presumably in January when the new term begins. Now, the timing of all that is kind of interesting. Mitch McConnell is going to be responsible for directing funds throughout this campaign season to the extent that the election is even real at all. And of course, is it not really? But Mitch is going to direct the funding just as he did in 2022 when the red wave never materialized. It was once again thwarted by election fraud all across the country and the fact that the Republican Party did not support MAGA candidates. All of that was directed by cocaine Mitch McConnell. There were quite a few people, including people in MAGA yesterday, hailing Mitch McConnell for his efforts in getting 300 nominations confirmed to the federal court system and three Supreme Court justices for Donald Trump. And of course, I'm not disputing that Mitch McConnell absolutely had some role in what ultimately turned out to be a success. People are giving Mitch a lot of credit for his role in those efforts. In my view, there is no reason to be doing that. Mitch McConnell was not doing it on behalf of American patriots everywhere. What was he supposed to do? Act like Donald Trump isn't president and everybody out there would just be okay with the Republican Senate majority leader thwarting a Republican president's effort to fill the courts with qualified constitutional originalists? 
that wouldn't have worked. Did Mitch hold people's feet to the fire in order to get the job done? Well, I'm not saying he didn't. Maybe he did. But if he did that because he was leveraged by his own compromise gained from four decades of serving the Uniparty in Washington, then I'm not going to go along with these stories about how he's a hero. Now, again, I hate getting into the personal judgments, knowing that we can't possibly have all the information about someone, but I can go on the surface interpretation. At least I can try to become very sophisticated in my understanding of that surface interpretation. If Mitch McConnell is somehow some secret agent patriot who has always been working for the best interests of the American people, then I'm happy to say I got one wrong and I owe him an apology. But in the meantime, we can go on what we know. And what we know is that this guy has done everything he can at virtually every turn to thwart the America First agenda. It is just as likely that he actually used his influence to blunt the impact of Trump's judicial nominations as much as he could while pushing them through because he had no choice. Now, I'm not saying that's what it is. That's what's happened. But I am saying it's possible that that's happened. And if you are going to ignore all of that based on the unlikely scenario that Mitch McConnell is secretly a very patriotic American and not a corrupt politician who spent four decades in the Senate and is still serving and stealing elections in his state while also legitimately glitching in public. There are at least two instances offhand I can think of that Mitch McConnell just straight up short circuited while in front of a microphone, just froze, paused, glassy eyed look, nothing going on in Mitch's skull for like a minute. And then someone walks him off stage. There is also, of course, the fact that a year ago he fell over at some Washington dinner, apparently became concussed and then was just gone for like two months. And most people also remember the bruises on his hands from a few years ago. He's also got Elaine Chow, his wife. She worked in the Bush administration, but then she worked in the Trump administration. Is she a good guy or a bad guy? Trump makes fun of her. He calls her Coco Chow. The media, they say that's racist somehow. People talk about how she's Chinese. She was actually born in Taiwan, which is China but it's also a global regime proxy state. So does that mean that she is for the CCP or against the CCP, but also which side is the CCP on at this point, since the entire Uniparty is simultaneously fully aligned with the CCP and has been for four decades, but also seems to hate Xi Jinping and wants to blame all sorts of things on China. I guess just seeing them as China doesn't quite work. In the Associated Press's coverage of Mitch announcing that he will step down from Senate leadership, McConnell gave no specific reason for the timing of his decision, which he has been contemplating for months, but he cited the recent death of his wife's youngest sister as a moment that prompted introspection. The end of my contributions are closer than I'd prefer, McConnell said. And that was quite a weird situation in its own right. We didn't discuss this a couple of weeks ago. This is coverage from CNBC on the 16th of February. Foremost Group CEO Angela Chow died after car went into Texas Pond 
Sheriff says. Chow's family on Wednesday announced she died in a car accident on Sunday, but did not disclose details of the incident at that time. On Friday, the Blanco County Sheriff's Office said in a statement that on Saturday, it, quote, responded to a possible water rescue on a private ranch located in Blanco County, Texas. On arrival, Blanco County deputies, along with Blanco County EMS and fire, recovered the body of Angela Chow from a pond on the ranch. EMS attempted emergency measures on Ms. Chow, but she succumbed from being underwater. Our preliminary investigation has determined this to be an unfortunate accident. The investigation is ongoing at this time. So not a lot of detail about this coming from the mainstream media. Others were reporting that her Tesla had driven backwards into the pond. It had slid backwards. Kyle Bass, who is a rather popular figure, he is the chief information officer of Heyman Capital Management, drew some attention with a series of tweets on X, formerly Twitter at the time. Angela Chow's death at a private Texas ranch in Blanco County is suspicious. Chow entered her Tesla and backed into a pond on the ranch and passed away. Chow, almost certainly a high-ranking member of the Communist Party of China, she sat on the board of the state-owned Bank of China, one of the five largest banks in China. She also sat as a board member of China Ship Building Corporation, which was sanctioned by the U.S. government in 2020 for building ships and weapons for the Chinese Navy. Her husband, Jim Breyer, has been a longtime VC investor in China. His joint venture firm, Beijing-based IDG Capital, was just added on February 9th to the Pentagon's list of Chinese military companies. Breyer's firm is the first ever private equity firm to be so designated by the U.S. Defense Department. Breyer, in January of 2024, decided to take a pause investing into China and Chinese tech companies for at least 18 months. Breyer's firm gets designated a Chinese military company just a few days ago. Chow's China shipbuilding was sanctioned by the Biden administration. She decides to back her Tesla into a pond and dies. Was her Tesla hacked? I'm not sure the Blanco County Sheriff has the tools necessary to investigate this internationally charged suspicious death. And he's right. That is a suspicious death. Could a Tesla be backed up into a pond and keep itself locked so that the person in the car dies? I'm pretty sure Tesla could be programmed to do that. And if you're the sort of people who engage in political murders and assassinations, well, you're probably also enemies with Elon Musk, or at least they sure act like they don't like Elon Musk. So making Teslas look extra dangerous in the process. Do I know what happened? Of course not. But it sounds possible. Now, is that some kind of warning to Mitch McConnell that has convinced Mitch McConnell to announce that he's stepping down from Senate leadership? Again, it's impossible to know that, but it's not the sort of thing that we should just rule out. We can accept that it's unproven and therefore remain ultimately agnostic about what actually happened while also understanding that we do live in the real world. Things like this happen, and this may well be the most likely explanation for such a strange and mysterious death. So now there is speculation about who might replace him. People are talking about Rand Paul. 
the establishment seems to think they'll get one of their guys in there like John Thune or John Cornyn. But I don't even know why this subject is up for discussion right now. Let's wait and see how this year plays out. The Uniparty, of course, is trying to make sure that it can maintain its control over the office of Senate leader for the Republicans. But that can only happen if all of MAGA decides to go along with it. Or we get caught in the Fox News media circus where they do advertising and promotion for whoever the Uniparty candidate may be. They want to make sure everyone in the country considers it an inevitability to put that person in that office. And I was thinking about it this morning. I kind of have the same sense about it that I do about the whole vice president discussion. And I'm of the mind that no one has proven themselves except for Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the only person who gets the benefit of the doubt when it comes to that stuff. Is there anyone in the Senate who you are certain you can trust? Josh Hawley? Eh, maybe. Rand Paul? Eh, maybe. Let's see how all of them comport themselves between now and whenever it is that Donald Trump becomes recognized once again as the president of the United States of America. We have to get it out of our heads, the whole mainstream media idea that someone must be anointed by the media. We're all going to get excited about who the TV tells us to be excited about. We're just going to anoint someone. These positions should be the result of wielding proper leverage on behalf of the American people while in Washington, D.C., not because of some bill they proposed 15 years ago that got signed into law and now they have a, a reputation as a deal maker, a respected Senate colleague and leader. And we don't need to play pretend about which one of them might be president someday. We should give them this promotion because one day they might be the right kind of president, exactly who we need. No, all of that is nonsense. Whichever person can adequately lead the America first takeover of the United States Senate should be the GOP Senate majority leader. But imagine anointing one of these establishment rhinos and then watching that establishment rhino spend the rest of this so-called election season supporting the Republican establishment and being wishy-washy about America first and knowing that person is going to be the Senate leader. Next year, let's see these people do the right thing and stick their neck out and give a full-throated support to America first and to the founding principles of this country and to a return of America's government to its people. This is not the time to just go around convincing everybody that Rand Paul is the greatest politician the country has ever seen. Everything immediately has to turn into a popularity contest and a reality show. It's like people would rather gossip about the characters and backgrounds of these individuals than actually fix problems in the society. Now, either all of the wannabe elites in the Uniparty media got tricked by the Mitch McConnell is a secret white hat operation too, or they actually saw Mitch McConnell as an ally more so than an enemy. Mitch McConnell is a punching bag to them. They can go after Mitch McConnell to prove their bona fides with the standard issue villagers on the Uniparty left, but it seems like they understand that he was ultimately working toward the same goals they were. This is David Graham in The Atlantic yesterday. Mitch McConnell surrenders to Trump. 
dour, somber Mitch McConnell was gleeful, if such a thing can be imagined. Surveying the aftermath of the January 6th riot, the longtime Kentucky senator concluded that Donald Trump was finished. I feel exhilarated by the fact that this fellow finally totally discredited himself. He told a reporter, he put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. That was a little more than three years ago. Today, McConnell surrendered to Trump. The Republican leader announced that he will step down from his leadership post in November, meaning that if Trump wins the presidential election, as he currently seems favored to do, he'll have a Senate Republican leader in place more ready to work with him. And of course, they will hint at that now, but that is not the uniparty right agenda. And we need to be cognizant of that as they present us options that are bad for us, each and every one of them. McConnell's exit marks Trump's conquest of the Senate, the one element of the GOP that still offered even a little resistance to the former president. Trump has all but clinched the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. The Republican National Committee may soon be controlled by one of his top campaign aides and his daughter-in-law. And he also, by the way, mentioned Kellyanne Conway as a possible addition to that in one of his speeches on Saturday night, which is so weird because her creepy little husband, George Conway, is still a Lincoln Project guy and a cable news Trump hater. I cannot imagine what it must be like in that house. The same way I could not imagine what it would be like in the Elaine Chow, Mitch McConnell house, if Mitch McConnell was actually a super secret, double agent, extra special secret white hat. Graham writes, the Speaker of the House rose to prominence trying to find legal means to overturn Trump's 2020 defeat. Governors who once criticized him, such as Larry Hogan and Chris Sununu, have left or will soon leave office. So sad. In recent weeks, McConnell has demonstrated his distance from Trump and shown that his grasp on the Senate, though slipping, remains formidable. Even as the more MAGA-dominated parts of the party rejected any suggestion of a border bill, McConnell threw his weight behind a compromise. Trump took that round, forcing McConnell to pull support for the bill. But McConnell then worked to get a package of aid for Israel and Ukraine through the Senate, despite Trump's opposition. The House, however, seems likely to smother that soon McConnell won't be around either. Graham begins to describe the rocky and, as he calls it, uneasy relationship between Trump and McConnell. He writes twice McConnell had the chance to end Trump's career. Oh, did he? Did he really? Eh, I don't think that's true. During Trump's first impeachment, he did not support conviction, though getting enough Republicans to vote to convict Trump might have been tough. A clearer opportunity came after January 6th. McConnell unsparingly criticized Trump, but he declined to push for convicting and barring him from office. Instead, he flinched, grabbing onto a theory that the Senate couldn't convict Trump because he had already left office. Oh yeah, that strange theory. Without that little fact, they would have totally been able to impeach him on the evidence that they made up for the January 6th primetime television show. Even the impeachment hoax was a joke. It was a joke at the time. We said it was a joke at the time. You can go back and listen to those episodes on this podcast. Beginning of February, 2021, Jamie Raskin just doctoring text messages, stuff like that, just throughout the hearing. It was, a, it was an absolute farce. 
Graham expresses a deep sense of cope, writing, McConnell thought he was playing the long game, but Trump was playing a longer game. Many of the mainstream media articles described it in the same way they called it a surrender to Donald Trump, a surrender to MAGA. Axios ran this headline yesterday, Trump's last step toward a total MAGA Republican Party. The Trumpification of the Republican Party is now complete. Come November, every powerful GOP leader will have been picked by Trump or spent the election cycle publicly kissing the ring. And that's a good thing, by the way. They call it kissing the ring. It's not kissing the ring. It's not about Trump. It's about understanding the stakes, understanding that it is the job of a politician to serve the people he represents or she represents. Hey, how about that, wokes and feminists? I just sent one on out for you, too. But that's their job. The people want Donald Trump. The people want a MAGA America first agenda. If politicians want to run to do something other than that, they have no business running and cannot and will not win. It's so simple. It's not about kissing Trump's ring. It's about you are running on an America first platform. You are willing to talk about election fraud and fixing our elections. You're willing to talk about our currency. You're willing to be honest about our foreign policy. You're willing to be honest about the usurpation of the United States of America. And you're willing to tear down the deep state and the administrative state. If people like that are kissing any ring at all, it is the MAGA ring. It is not the Donald Trump ring. And I'm obviously not trying to diminish Donald Trump's importance here. I think Donald Trump is telling us very clearly that the movement should not be about him. He's the one in a position to fix things on behalf of the American people. And that is true. He is the person best positioned to fix things. But the point isn't to do all of this for Donald Trump so Donald Trump can rule us. The point is to do all of this so that Donald Trump can finish the job he signed up to do and then hand that authority back to the American people in whatever form that takes in the future. Axios writes, after a brief break in Trump's reign after the 2020 election, the chips are once again falling in favor of the former president as he inches closer to the GOP presidential nomination. They talk about Mitch McConnell ready to step down. The three likeliest GOP successors, they say, Barrasso, Cornyn, and Thune have already endorsed Trump. None of those guys are going to get the job. That's the thing. None of those guys are going to get the job. They note, of course, that there is a MAGA-friendly Speaker of the House leading the Republican Party in the House, that Donald Trump is dominating every one of the GOP fake primary contests. And you've got Nikki Haley out there hoping Trump goes to prison while admitting that the GOP seems to be Trump's party now. So all the Republican voters want to support Donald Trump, and she expects that she's going to win by holding on, hoping that Donald Trump goes to prison. Well, that's not going to work. All right. So let's talk about the situation in the House with the funding bills and the funding deadlines that are coming up. There was supposed to be one tomorrow. That deadline has been pushed back to next Friday. Next Friday's deadline has been pushed back two more weeks to March 22nd. Let's get the angry take 
because it's worth understanding the angry take in a normal situation. What is happening should be cause for anger. We're not in a normal situation and we can understand that anger isn't the proper or productive response and just not respond that way. But it's still important to recognize the principle, understand the lesson we are being taught through this absolute unconstitutional malfeasance that continues in Washington, D.C. So, as I said, red state, the headline continuing resolutions frustrate Republicans and call Speaker Johnson's ability to lead into question. The House vote is part of a deal struck Wednesday between House Speaker Mike Johnson, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and Minority Leaders Mitch McConnell and Representative Hakeem Jeffries that guarantees the passage of 2024 appropriations bills some six months into the fiscal year. House and Senate negotiators have agreed on the Agriculture, FDA, Energy, Water, Military Construction, and VA, Transportation, and housing and urban development, interior and environment, and commerce, justice, and science bills. These bills will receive a vote on March 8th. The rest of government, including the more contentious Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, and the Departments of Labor, Health, and Human Services, and Education, will receive a vote on March 22nd. The bottom line here is that the bills have been finalized, and while there may be some drama surrounding their passage, they will pass. Establishment members of the Freedom Caucus, like DeSantis supporters Thomas Massey and Chip Roy, took to X, formerly Twitter, to let everybody know that despite supporting Ron DeSantis, they are very patriotic conservatives. Massey wrote on Twitter, the first installment of the omnibus is allegedly coming up for a vote next week. They've been writing this behemoth behind closed doors for weeks. If just one third of U.S. representatives will oppose it, we can stop this monstrosity. And hey, good luck, Massey. It's really too bad you cucked out on the whole Ron DeSantis thing. Chip Roy embraced his tough guy persona that is obviously not real at all. And he said, we have a fundamental responsibility under the Constitution of the United States to use the power of the purse to check an executive branch that is not following the law. Red State cites an article from The Hill. The head of the hardline House Freedom Caucus is bashing the nascent funding agreement hashed out by leaders of both parties, warning that conservatives would be willing to force a government shutdown to secure steeper cuts and policy preferences. Representative Bob Good has led the charge among far-right lawmakers urging Speaker Mike Johnson to fight for scores of conservative policy riders to accompany the 2024 spending bills. Absent that, those Republicans want the Speaker to champion a stopgap bill known as a continuing resolution to extend government funding at current 2023 levels through the remainder of the fiscal year, which ends on October 1st. The latter strategy would trigger an automatic 1% cut to federal programs of all types beginning May 1st, a stipulation of last summer's bipartisan Fiscal Responsibility Act designed to encourage lawmakers to reach an agreement on 2024 spending or face reductions to popular programs. 
Now, I don't see either of those as impressive options, and I am not impressed by the Freedom Caucus for presenting them. Red State, of course, is impressed by all of these things because Red State is a Republican establishment outlet, much like Town Hall, much like PJ Media. These were the outlets that got behind the ridiculous Ron DeSantis op. They clearly and obviously and unashamedly support the uniparty right and their view of things. We want a government shutdown. Shut down the government. That is leverage. That is leverage the Republicans hold. If they want to motion to vacate and get rid of Mike Johnson, then by all means, do it. But there's no point in having leverage if you're not going to use leverage. Right now, the Uniparty does not have leverage. That means that concessions can be extracted. And when concessions can be extracted, concessions should be extracted. The government should not be winning out over the American people all the time. In fact, they shouldn't be winning out over the American people any of the time. That is not the purpose of government. Mike Johnson is in that position. The country is saying no deal. It is not then Mike Johnson's job to go in and say, yeah, we're going to make a deal anyway, despite the fact that the people don't want it. The leverage must be used. Now, I think all of this is a rug pull in the first place. It's going to shut down when it shuts down. That financial moment is going to come when that financial moment comes. You can look at the timing of all these events, these deadlines coinciding with various narrative pushes on these key issues used to create enough pressure to achieve that unipartisan compromise. And right now, those two issues are Russia, Ukraine, and then, of course, the Israel and Taiwan fake foreign proxy wars and the border security issue that they pretended wasn't an issue for three years. And now it's the biggest issue of all time. In addition to that, they want to pass the rest of this spending so that they can keep the gravy train flowing at least until the election. And maybe I'm misunderstanding what Bob Good is doing here, but why even offer the option to pass a CR that keeps the government funded through October 1st? Is that the move? Do you want to have this budget fight one month out from the election? Now, if that's the move, if that's going to create the right narrative pressure, all good. There is no point trying to come up with our ideal situations. We're going to play the cards we are dealt and we're going to play them as intelligently as we possibly can. Our leverage on all of these issues continues to grow as the country begins to understand that we actually have been right about all of these things this entire time. They were nervous that Joe Biden might have to be the first president ever to give a State of the Union address in the middle of a government shutdown. Well, he's also the first totally fake and obviously fake president we've ever had. His first pretend State of the Union was that little event where they had all the congressmen and senators socially distanced. Remember them up in the balconies with plastic barriers between one another? All the masks on? All of that was such an absolute disgrace. And while we're on the topic of an empty house chamber, this was from the Texas Attorney General's office this week, February 27th, that's Tuesday. Attorney General Ken Paxton wins case challenging $1.7 trillion federal funding bill passed unconstitutionally with less than half of U.S. Congress physically present. 
And I think it's worth going through this statement from Paxton's office. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton secured a major victory in defense of the United States Constitution with a court ruling that the $1.7 trillion omnibus spending package was unlawfully passed by the U.S. House of Representatives in 2022 without a quorum physically present as constitutionally required. The court enjoined the defendants, the U.S. Attorney General, the U.S. Department of Justice, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and their officials from enforcing a provision of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023 against the state of Texas that was proved to impose unjust cost burdens on the state. The Quorum Clause of the U.S. Constitution mandates that the chambers of Congress must have a majority of members physically present to constitute a quorum before most official business may be conducted. However, in December 2022, fewer than half of the House representatives were physically present when they passed the $1.7 trillion Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, with those not present voting by proxy. When President Joe Biden signed the illegally passed law, Attorney General Ken Paxton sued and sought an injunction against the implementation of certain provisions of the law affecting the state of Texas. Now, the House proxy voting began in March of 2020. Did you hear anything in that description that said this particular issue was an isolated issue? It was only this issue that was unconstitutional because of the limits on proxy voting. I didn't hear anything. Why wouldn't this affect pretty much everything from the spring of 2020 through last year when the Republicans took back control of the House of Representatives? And let's just close out with the statement from the Texas Attorney General's office. Congress acted egregiously by passing the largest spending bill in U.S. history with fewer than half the members of the House bothering to do their jobs, show up and vote in person, said Attorney General Paxton. Former Speaker Nancy Pelosi abused proxy voting under the pretext of COVID-19 to pass this law. Then Biden signed it knowing they violated the Constitution. This was a stunning violation of the rule of law. I am relieved the court upheld the Constitution. What could that mean for the future? Joe Biden signing laws that are in direct violation to the words of the Constitution? Huh. Gotta wonder, does the Constitution allow fake presidents to do that? Now, I know people think I'm crazy when I say that all of this is fake and all of it is null and void because all of it is done illegally all these things have to do is be challenged and they will go away. Now, the effects they've had over time cannot just be reversed. I'm not claiming that, but I am saying that we are in the midst of a process that is unwinding all of this stuff. It's not just that we have to unwind what's happened over the last three years. We have to unwind what's happened over the last three decades. And in some ways, we have to unwind a bunch of things that have happened over the last three centuries. Our government has been infiltrated and taken over. Our constitution has been brushed aside and replaced. And it's been replaced within the constitution through the amendment process. Again, I've been reading that book, Our Secret Constitution by George P. Fletcher, Columbia law professor. In that book, 
He argues explicitly, specifically, clearly, and unashamedly that the Reconstruction Amendments were put in place to change the U.S. over from a country centered around liberty to one centered around equality, to shift the focus from the individual to the nation, and to change the country from a constitutional republic into a democracy. This is the Prussian system as it is implemented everywhere. And you can see the same motivations and the same understanding of the issues in any communist literature. And again, Fletcher isn't some guy screaming, the South will rise again with the Confederate battle flag emblazoned on his car. Those are also just the Dukes of Hazard. This guy is a Columbia law professor. He absolutely worships the Prussian system, and it is clear in his writing and in the people he references. And he is not shy about saying that the Civil War was fought specifically to accomplish the goals of the Reconstruction Amendments. There is a lot of unwinding to do, but you can see how it's starting to take shape. And I think people should take a lot of heart in this decision. This is a big deal because they did a whole lot of stuff in there that wasn't remotely constitutional and must be done away with. Back to the Red State article, they, of course, have to include some commentary from the Daily Beast who quoted some Republican lawmaker who I guess wishes to remain anonymous saying of Mike Johnson, the way he's handled this whole thing is abysmal. I mean, there's been zero communication with the conference. He can do a much better job. I still really don't know everything that's involved in it. I haven't heard it from his mouth yet. That's the most concerning. Well, hey, guys, here's the thing. Don't vote for it. Don't support it. Come out against it. Come out for a government shutdown. Take an actual stand. Use the leverage and don't give in. And if Mike Johnson carries it forward anyway, and you are actually making a principled stand, then submit a motion to vacate. People are supposed to be doing the right things all the time. They're not supposed to be telling us, hey, don't worry about it. I know you don't have any reason to trust us and everything we do shows you that we don't care about you at all, but you got to see we're part of a much deeper plan. And again, I'm one of those guys that argues that there actually is a much deeper plan and that many people are following it, but it's not our responsibility to assume that everyone who isn't doing the right thing has a good reason for it. That is not our role. Our role is to demand that the right thing be done all the time and that leverage is applied to yield the proper outcome. That's not turning my back on the movement. That's not blackpilling. That is saying that at some point, someone else is going to have to drive this bus. Even if there is some grand plan that is absolutely locked into place for the rest of the year, is it also locked into place for next year? What about the year after that? What about the year after that and after that and after that and after that? And if the plan is locked into place by the white hats and the military controlling everything, then we don't really have the United States of America in the first place, do we? They haven't then handed power back to the people, have they? Even if their plan is the best plan ever and many faithful patriots are executing that plan, two claims which I can totally get on board with. 
there still at some point must be a role for other people that aren't aware of that plan. And things must return to a cohesive reality prime. It can't just be a plan and an info op forever. And if we are not even demanding that we return to some sort of baseline reality, then what makes you think that'll ever happen? It would just be a situation where we are removing their liars, their political criminals, their corrupt actors, and replacing them with our liars, our political criminals, our corrupt actors. The goal here is not to just change brands of the mainstream media. And so finally, let's get into some of the court stuff. And by the way, apparently things have gotten so much worse for Fonnie Willis. Text messages were personally delivered to Megan Kelly to break the news. This is a Fonnie takedown, as I described nearly two weeks ago now. She is getting heat from both sides. Fonnie is toast. The Uniparty right and the Uniparty left have agreed to take down Fonnie Willis. Is that going to end the Trump case? I think the answer is probably no. Is it going to end Fonnie Willis's involvement in the Trump case? I would not be surprised if the answer to that is also no, and she stays on board. And people will absolutely lose their shit, which in some sense is entirely justifiable, but in another sense is those people reacting in exactly the way the Uniparty media has set out for them to react. Also in relatively minor Donald Trump litigation news, CNN yesterday, Trump must come up with the full bond amount to cover the $454 million civil fraud trial judgment appeals court judge rules. Former President Donald Trump must come up with the full amount to cover the $454 million verdict in the civil fraud trial. Associate Justice Anil Singh, however, lifted a ban on Trump's ability to obtain loans from New York regulated financial institutions, which could allow him to access the equity in his assets to back the full bond amount. Singh denied Trump's request to delay his obligation to post $454 million until a full appellate panel hears his motion to stay enforcement of that judgment until his appeal of the civil fraud rulings are over. The decision followed an emergency hearing that lasted about 20 minutes. So Trump was basically saying, hey, I'm going to appeal this ridiculous judgment and so I should not have to turn over nearly half a billion dollars while this case is still on appeal. And the judge said, actually, we are going to have you turn over that half a billion dollars until this injustice can be reversed. And again, we can recognize the injustice. We can understand that Trump is being royally screwed, but also recognize that this stuff has a tendency to flip around and if you think about it that way and still agree that the judge has made a bad decision, okay, I totally understand. But if you flip it around and from that view, you're like, all right, I get why this principle makes sense. Maybe this judge really did rule the right way in a principled manner. And it just feels bad about this Trump case in the future. Then you would understand that there is a principal purpose to explain why the other side would then be treated in the same way. And it sucks right now. 
because the only prominent figure to really be pursued for anything high level and important, it's Donald Trump. But this is not a permanent state. I feel like it's going to look a whole lot different a year from now. So Trump is being told that he needs to put this money forward in order to begin the appeals process. He had offered through his lawyers to put up $100 million, but that wasn't good enough. So it's going to be the full $454 million plus about 20% on top of that to pay the bond. So he's going to have to come up with about $550 billion. But in order to help him do that, the judge was open to allowing Trump to pursue a loan. Gosh, it's so nice. So let's get to the big Trump legal issue. This is from yesterday in the New York Times. Supreme Court agrees to hear Trump's immunity claim, setting arguments for April. The Supreme Court on Wednesday agreed to decide whether Donald Trump is immune from prosecution on charges of plotting to overturn the 2020 election further delaying his criminal trial as it considers the matter. The justices scheduled arguments for the week of April 22nd and said proceedings in the trial court would remain frozen, handing at least an interim victory to Mr. Trump. His litigation strategy and all of the criminal prosecutions against him has consisted in large part of trying to slow things down. And so this is the media narrative all week long. Donald Trump's strategy to combat all of these ridiculous indictments and prosecutions is just to slow the clock down so that he can't be imprisoned by this illegitimate administration prior to the election, which is what they really want. Because if Donald Trump wins the election, well, then he can just stop the indictments and pardon himself. And that all sounds very likely and very scary and very unjust if you are the sort of just brain dead sociopath who still believes that Donald Trump attempted to overthrow the American government while president and that he prevented the peaceful transfer of power, even though he told everybody, hey, I'm no longer president on January 20th. They are mad that Donald Trump is actively pursuing justice in his own cases. He apparently is not supposed to be contesting any of this stuff. He's just supposed to let them roll these prosecutions directly over him and crush his campaign in the MAGA movement. And I'll play some of their reactions, some of the media's reactions in just a couple of minutes. You can hear the entitlement in these people's voices. They thought that this was definitely going to be the silver bullet that finally takes down Donald Trump. Back to the New York Times for the moment. The Supreme Court's response to Mr. Trump put the justices in the unusual position of deciding another aspect of the former president's fate, whether and how quickly Mr. Trump could go to trial. That in turn could affect his election prospects and should he be reelected, his ability to scuttle the prosecution. The timing of the argument was sort of a compromise. Jack Smith the special counsel overseeing the federal prosecutions of Mr. Trump had asked the court to move more quickly, requesting that the justices hear the case in March. They wanted all of this expedited, you see, to make sure that the calendar worked for them. It's not OK for Donald Trump to delay any of this stuff. In fact, they are making out like it is some sort of illegal, unethical act for Donald Trump to appeal any of this on the basis that he is only doing it 
to delay the process and get off even though he would totally be guilty otherwise. But it's not a manipulation for them to care about the calendar and for them to arrange the calendar in whatever way best seems to fit their political motivations. Mr. Trump, by contrast, had asked the court to proceed at its usual deliberate pace and to consider the case only after he asked the full U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit to review the decision of a unanimous three-judge panel, which had rejected his claim of absolute immunity. Now, people went wild over this yesterday, and as I said, the propagandists on MSNBC absolutely lost their minds. And we can always have fun with that. But this also seems like a surefire rug pull in about two months on the issue of immunity. I imagine the court is going to decide that Donald Trump does not have immunity. And the New York Times kind of previews that with a little narrative seating here, writing, if the court rules for Mr. Trump in the Colorado case, and that is the case we talked about a couple of weeks ago regarding the ballot access it might be attracted to the optics of ruling against him on his claim of immunity, which legal experts say is an ambitious argument with potentially frightening implications. So the New York Times is supporting the view that the court should make decisions based on optics. That is where we are now. The Constitution being interpreted in an ad hoc manner based on political optics and expediency is what is expected in our society at this point. That's bonkers. And before we get into some of that crazy media commentary, this is the important part of this issue. The Supreme Court's brief order said the court would decide this question, whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to involve official acts during his tenure in office, official acts as president. That is what Donald Trump is arguing he should have immunity for, not as you will soon hear, ordering an assassination of a political rival. We're talking about stuff being done openly and transparently in office that is in accordance with the duties of that office. In his emergency application, Mr. Trump said the appeals court panel had been wrong to rule that he may be criminally charged for his conduct as president. Total immunity for his official conduct, Mr. Trump's application said, is required by the separation of powers, implicit in procedures for impeaching the president and needed to prevent partisan misuse of the criminal justice system. An absence of criminal immunity for official acts threatens the very ability of the president to function properly, the filing said. Any decision by the president on a politically controversial question would face the threat of indictment by the opposing party after a change in administrations. The ridiculous character Jack Smith in the special counsel's response to Trump's application wrote, if Mr. Trump's radical claims were accepted, it would upend understandings about presidential accountability that have prevailed throughout history while undermining democracy and the rule of law, particularly where, as here, a former president is alleged to have committed crimes to remain in office 
despite losing an election, thereby seeking to subvert constitutional procedures for transferring power and to disenfranchise millions of voters. Except, of course, none of that is true, and all of that will simply be proven. All right, now let's have a little fun before we get out of here for the day. This is Rachel Maddow last night on MSNBC. was biding for as much time as he could because this was his last chance to insert delay, which, of course, is what Trump wants. I think that was, you know, if you think about the, the court as the Supreme Court of the United States and a rational actor and a decent one, that was a reasonable supposition. And it just turns out they're not that. Um, and, Chris, I, I feel you in terms of the emotion that you're bringing to this right now um, and the, the sort of sense of urgency with which you're underscoring what this means. It's. It's true. There isn't, I mean, there just isn't way any, any way around it. And I feel like for people who haven't been following this, if you want to know why there's a, there's a hair on fire reaction to this, if you haven't been following every interstitial, you know, incremental bit of progress here, the important question here is not whether the Supreme Court is going to decide that Donald Trump and all presidents are immune from prosecution for things they commit, crimes they committed while they were president. I mean, it would be fully insane for them to actually side with Trump here, right? Remember, this is the case where Trump's lawyer was asked by Judge Florence Pan in the appeals court, are you telling me that this guy could, that, that a president could order the assassination of his political rivals and there could be no prosecution for that? That, that would be okay. We'd have to let that go, not only for the duration of his presidency, but for the duration of his life. That would be okay. And Trump's lawyers are basically like, yeah. So the idea that they're going to side with him on immunity is unthinkable and also beside the point. The conclusion that we can arrive at now based on what they have done without having to wait for the ruling is that they are ensuring that Trump will not face trial. And when they inevitably rule that presidents aren't immune from prosecution after they leave office, what that will tell Donald Trump, if by then he is president, is that he can never leave the office of the presidency. Right. And if he is voted out in 2028, he cannot leave office, and he is willing to com he is, he is welcome to commit any crimes he wants to, as long as he is still president in order to ignore the result of that election and stay in power for life, because otherwise he is going to go to prison when he gets out. That is the way this is going to go unless the country votes Trump out, votes for Biden and against Trump in November. Yeah, that, that point about the incentive structure produced by this is one that I hadn't even thought about, but it's, 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 it's very clearly. Now that, my friends, is a conspiracy theory. That is some serious conspiracy theory action from MSNBC. Rachel Maddow believes that the Supreme Court will give Donald Trump his way and then he's just going to stay in office forever, committing whatever crimes he needs to commit to guarantee that, because if he doesn't stay in office forever, then he would get arrested and prosecuted when he comes out. And they kind of know he's going to win in 2024. It's hilarious. They also just might be reacting this way to emotionally manipulate all of us. It's worth keeping that in mind. Again, we probably are going to get rug pulled on this whole immunity thing. And it's funny to watch them freak out about the timeline, about the calendar, 
but we don't really care about the timeline or calendar. Donald Trump doesn't need to delay his way through this. None of these cases have anything behind them. We should not engage in the reality of this analysis based on the reality of these cases when there's nothing actually there. We can still be entertained by the meltdowns these people are having. They genuinely are standard issue villagers on the uniparty left. Yes, they are wannabe elites. They want to be at the very, very top of the ladder of standard issue villagers, but they seem to have no idea what's going on. Now, again, it's always possible that everybody is a super secret, very special double agent, white hat, info op, just doing their thing. It's always possible, but it seems like they are just standard, overeducated, wealthy liberals who are totally detached from reality. You have to at least allow for the possibility that these people really don't know anything and that they really, truly believe all of the stuff that they come out and say on television. Now, you might think that eight straight years of being wrong all the time about everything in public, obviously, would maybe make you doubt your sources of information and the analysis of all the people around you who everyone calls experts, but apparently not. Here's Rachel Maddow's trans doppelganger in an enormous amount of makeup. There are a lot of folks who believed that there was some kind of method of accountability, some would-be hero that was going to save us from the dictatorial monster in the Oval Office. There was, remember Michael Avenatti, the lawyer for adult film star Stormy Daniels? Avenatti is currently in federal prison, serving a 14-year sentence for stealing millions of dollars from his clients. But then it was special counsel Robert Mueller, the investigation into connections between the Trump campaign and Russia. And of course, in that report, Mueller's report failed to find sufficient evidence of a criminal conspiracy. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg brought his case against the former president in connection with those hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. The outcome seems the most up in the air, but it's also probably going to be the only one to actually go to trial before the election. Jack Smith brought indictments against Trump in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, which, if you read the indictment, seems open and shut, and Trump's efforts to steal the 2020 election, thanks to Trump-appointed Judge Aileen Cannon in Florida and now the Supreme Court. It's likely neither trial will happen before November. Letitia James achieved one of the um, only legal wins against Trump. Trump is appealing. He has not paid a cent yet. Eugene Carroll uh, successfully sued him for defamation. Here's the thing, most important thing. The only thing that has ever worked to stop Donald Trump is you and me. And I mean that in the sense of the will of the voters. Americans, the pro-democracy majority in America, showing up the polls and in the streets and in civil society to protest Donald Trump and to vote against him. The democracy he wants to badly to destroy, that is the only way that this will end. Chris Hayes needs you to steal an election, riot in the streets, and engage all their quote-unquote civil society organizations. They are all going to combine to oppose Donald Trump once again. This is the only thing that can defeat Donald Trump. All those other silver bullets they thought they had 91 indictments. Donald Trump was going to spend 700 years in prison. And now he might be president again before we even get to say he's guilty of these crimes. And that's what they really wanted. They wanted that guilty verdict so that they could say it's all real. After that, who cares? The appeals process, 
Who cares? Who cares about any of it? The audience of these lunatics, they all called Donald Trump a rapist and a racist, by the way. But they really believe he was like found guilty of sexual assault just because some judge in a courtroom in a civil trial thought it was maybe more likely than not that E. Jean Carroll was telling the truth. No evidence of any actual sexual assault. She can't even remember when it happened. But they don't care about the actual result. They only care about the narrative result. Here's more. And just the sort of the court's hope that the kind of anodyne procedural nature means that the it's what they're doing is illegible, mm-hmm. right? That they can they can do this and like, oh, and then the news alert is like the court will take up the immunity argument. It's like, oh, well, that sounds reasonable. When are they going to do it? Oh, in April. OK, well, that that's part of the play here, that they're insulated um, from the backlash. Well, you know, I'm I hate to break the mood. If, if that's, please if break that's the mood, buddy. Do. So I, my <laughs> hair isn't even warm. Uh, good. Good. I'm on fire. Uh, but here's why. OK, here's why. And let me just work backwards, because I think that the most important thing you said uh, in your opening remarks is that this outcome should not be up to five members of the United States Supreme Court. It is really up to you, the voter, and that's a version of what Rachel was just saying, too. This, these votes, these four votes, because this piece of paper, all you need is four votes in the Supreme Court to turn out this piece of paper today. These four votes can be proven less important by the American people in the way they cast their own votes in right. November. I personally believe, having seen how well Joe Biden did in Michigan, having seen how badly uh, Donald Trump did in Michigan and in the other states, that Joe Biden is going to be reelected. And that's why I am not worried at all about the timetable. That is what you would call, once again, cope. That is ridiculous. Joe Biden did well in a primary that, for all intents and purposes, isn't happening. Joe Biden's not debating people. He's not campaigning. And the primary was held in a regime election fraud stronghold. There was never any question about the outcome of that election. If anything, it was still manipulated to make Biden look better and Trump look worse. Is Lawrence O'Donnell stupid or is he just presenting a counterpoint that members of MSNBC's audience who are exceptionally triggered at Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes, maybe they could find a little bit of comfort so that they can show all their friends how not scared they are. You know, Lawrence O'Donnell is right. Joe Biden probably will beat Donald Trump again, just like he did in in 2020. Apparently, they still have people who believe this stuff. Now, Chris Hayes mentioned Robert Mueller there. Robert Mueller, of course, an associate of Andrew Weissman, famous Russia hoaxer, and now MSNBC legal analyst. Here he is from this morning. On the merits, the Supreme Court made the right decision here to hear the arguments. I don't. Um, I think that this is such a frivolous argument. Uh, This is a case where even if you thought there might be some circumstance where a president could be immune with respect to certain actions that he takes within his or her official capacity, this is surely not the case. Uh, As Judge Ludig has said and actually submitted a brief, 
when you're dealing with um, the crimes that are alleged here, which is illegally staying in office, that, that is an absolute violation of the Constitution. Uh, and so I think that this is really improvident. And by granting the stay, they essentially are saying that he is de facto immune. So I don't think they should right. have taken the case. Uh, and I think it ends up being that they've given a win to Trump here. And I think they're going to give a win to the Trump in the Colorado case as well. Did he just say that Trump illegally stayed in office? How's that possible? Trump stayed in office illegally. Well, that's weird because he was president and then on January 20th, 2021, he left and now he's not president anymore. And Joe Biden totally, absolutely is president. How did Donald Trump illegally stay in the office of president? I mean, maybe Andrew Weissman just misspoke, but otherwise the crime he's accusing Donald Trump of surely Donald Trump could not have committed as he totally left office on January 20th, 2021. Weissman, by the way, according to his MSNBC Chiron, is now the host of a podcast called Prosecuting Donald Trump. These people are insane. Here is Ellie Mistel of The Nation magazine, MSNBC commentator. He's that big dude in the glasses with the massive mushroom of white hair. He kind of looks like the toad character from Mario Kart, except a uh, big black commie. Alia says, and they still decide to take it up. What it says is that they are cor corrupted political actors who act in bad faith. The reason why people like Mark and people like Dahlia seem to have a crystal ball is because they're real because they're realists and they understand the court for what it is. And at some point, people in the media, people at home, and people sitting in the White House have to stop pretending that the Supreme Court is some kind of benign, trying to do its best institution and start to realize that there are six Republicans, not conservatives, Republicans on the Supreme Court who view it as their job to help the Republican Party. And until we do something about that, until we take away that power, until we draw the line on them there, they will continue to do this. They will help Trump. They will take away abortion rights. They will end affirmative action. They will liberalize gun rights. They will do all of it until we stop them. And somebody, somebody needs to start listening in the higher echelons of the Democratic Party because we will keep losing every day we allow these six republicans in robes to rule over all of us that guy is insane that is an authoritarian that's a totalitarian that my friends is a communist he wants full control over absolutely everything the supreme court those are republicans in robes they're ruling over all of us why because they're going to hear an argument over whether or not the quote unquote former president of the United States of America has immunity in office for official acts done openly and transparently in good faith on behalf of the American people. They are mad that Donald Trump challenged the reported results of an election stolen, obviously in broad daylight. Donald Trump as president has to do that. Any president has to do that. By the way, 
any senator and any congressman, they have to do it too. And they didn't do it. In fact, they helped in that steal and they will all have to be held accountable for that. But Eli Mistel or Ellie Mistel is begging for some authoritative power within the uniparty structure to come and save them from all of this. The silver bullet doesn't seem like it's going to work. And before we move on from him, ask yourself, would that man steal an election? Would he cover up the theft of an American election? Would he explain to people that the only moral thing he could do was cover up the theft of that election? I would submit to you that he would absolutely do all of those things. He would be happy about it. He would take pride in it because he is a true believer. That is the genuine article. That is a communist. I mean, he writes for the nation. It's one of the most communist magazines in the country. They call themselves progressive, but that's what it is. And let's just bring it home with Rachel Maddow. Why not? Well, yeah. And, and the other, I mean, the other big, like Nixon, if we're going to carry forward a thing from Nixon here, when you talk about the cravenness of the court, Chris, the cravenness of the court is evident in what they are doing with the pacing here, right? Like putting this off for seven weeks, sitting on it for two weeks for no reason, obviously pushing all of the cases that they can push, pushing them to the point where uh, Trump will be standing for election before any of us have heard the verdicts in any of those cases. Got it. It's the timing. But it's also the idea that the immunity thing is an open question, right? Is really presidential immunity an open question? Because what's the most famous pardon in American history? Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon once he had resigned and was a former president. Why did Gerald Ford pardon Richard Nixon? Quote, as a result of certain acts or omissions occurring before his resignation as president, meaning as a result of stuff he did while president, quote, Richard Nixon has become liable to possible indictment and trial. Right. Whether or not he shall be so prosecuted depends on findings of the appropriate grand jury and the discretion of the authorized prosecutor. So. The idea that this is an open question, that it might be that a former president can never be tried for something that he did because he was president when he did it, is disproven by a plain reading of American history and the whole justification for Richard Nixon being pardoned in the first place. So the idea that this has to be taken up is them saying the sky is green. Right. And I think even for the non-lawyers among us to be able to say, you know what, the sky is not green even on our worst day, this is BS. You are doing this as a dilatory tactic to help your political, your political friend, your partisan patron. And for, for you to say that this is something that the court needs to decide because it's something that's unclear in the law is just flagrant, flagrant bullpucky. And they know it and they don't care that we know it. And that's disturbing about the future legitimacy of the court. Now, people pretend that Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes are very smart, but they're not very smart. And what she just said made no sense. She's saying that during the Watergate scandal, there was a question about Nixon being investigated for a potential indictment. And in light of that, Nixon chose to step down. He was then later pardoned, though there was no crime nor conviction that he had been charged with, tried for or convicted of. If they had investigated him and they had chosen to indict him, Nixon would have then been in a position to make the same challenge maybe even all the way up to the Supreme Court 
about whether or not he could be prosecuted. And that's only half of it, because this, again, is an official act by the president that he was doing openly and transparently in good faith and on behalf of the American people. It would have been a total abdication of his duty not to challenge the reported results of an obviously stolen election. Now, do Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes understand that? I would submit to you that they have to understand that, and they are still nonetheless happy to lie to their audience, knowing that their audience doesn't understand that, and themselves understanding that they need the audience to do certain things in a narrative sense and in an activist sense. They need to keep that tension ratcheted up. They need to give these people something to believe in that a silver bullet will still come save them from Donald Trump. But maybe even with my low estimation of their intelligence, because they're wrong about that too, by the way, maybe even my low estimation is not low enough. Maybe they actually think the things they are saying are smart. But hey, inside that information bubble, things are pretty dumb. And maybe in their world, that is smart. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm Your Moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon, down on the range. It's hell!